This is Tempest Tossed, Conversations on Migration and Mobility, and I'm Alex Alenikoff. On the corner of Wythe Avenue and 10th Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, is a parking structure. It's a big concrete structure with big concrete walls. The new school, which is the home university for the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility, which produces this podcast, uh, the new school, being a hip and edgy New York player, took over those concrete walls and applied paint and words in an an eye-catching way. So the wall now declares, in very large letters and against a background of red, black, and white, dismantle a wall with words, learn some new thing. You can see a picture of the wall and the art on our website, tempesttossed.com. I'm not sure where those words came from, and it's far from obvious what they mean. So Tempest Tossed decided to have a conversation to explore it. On the top floor of the Hoxton Hotel in Williamsburg, facing the wall and with a gorgeous backdrop of the skyline of Manhattan, Maya Wiley and I sat down in front of a live audience to talk about walls, walls between countries, between groups, between people. I should add that many of those in the audience were sipping on the newly minted New School Negroni, and we've also posted on our website the recipe for that cocktail. Maya Wiley is no doubt known to many of you as a legal analyst at MSNBC, and needless to say, current events have kept her extremely busy in that role. Her day job is as the Henry Cohn Professor of Urban Policy and Management at the New School's Milano School of International Affairs, Management, and Urban Policy. That's a long title. But she's got even a better title. She is the Senior Vice President for Social Justice at the New School. And that's got to be one of the all-time great titles for an academic, Senior Vice President for Social Justice. And as you'll see from the conversation, it'll be apparent to you why Maya serves in this position. So we'll play a big chunk of the discussion. You may hear some audience reaction. It's the Negronis laughing. Uh, But mainly you'll hear what Maya and I think about walls, all kinds of walls, and the ability to dismantle them with words. Uh, I was just starting a cold as we recorded uh, the conversation, so my voice uh, is a bit scratchy, uh, but we'll work our way through it. Here we go. So, Alex, have we always had walls when it comes to immigration? So, no, you know, we haven't always had walls. Uh, From the founding of this country until the 1920s, we basically had open borders, and people don't remember that. I'll just answer this a little story. I was actually... Uh, on Ellis Island this weekend, which I hadn't been to for many years. And if you hadn't been, you really should go visit. It's an extraordinary national park with, uh, they've restored it to what it looked like in the 1920s and uh, a great exhibit. About 12 million Americans, soon to be Americans, came through Ellis Island. 40% of all Americans can trace themselves to an ancestor who came to Ellis Island. So an extraordinary part of the U.S. story. And we sometimes think about Ellis Island as this um, island of tears, right? We, the, the forbidding place. But actually, 98% of the immigrants who came to Ellis Island got through. And they spent about four or five hours on Ellis Island and then came into the United States. That was because there were no 
immigration regulations. There were few about you couldn't come if you were likely to become a public charge, that was the expression, or had a serious disease. But basically, we had no numerical limits. And this was from the beginning until the 1920s. And so the idea that you can, you, you, you need borders and walls, you need walls to have countries. I think our president has said that a number of times. You don't have a wall, you don't have a country. We had a country without a wall for, for a long time, and it wasn't that the, the open borders that Ellis Island displayed didn't harm the U.S., it built the U.S., it built the, U, it built the New York subways, Italian immigrants, it built the Lower East Side, it built all that. Now, just take one more second on this if I can. My, um, some might say, oh, well, that was then, but you know, now is now, and now it's a different world, but Think about this. First of all, there are no walls around New York City. There are no walls around any American city. You can go live in any state in any city in the United States. So you can have political jurisdictions without walls. You can have countries without walls. Think about the European Union, 27 countries. Free movement, free settlement among 27 countries, half a billion people. And there may be problems in some of those states, and some of those states may be leaving the EU, but... Uh, but for those that remain, there's free movement, free settlement. Uh, so you can definitely have countries without walls. Well, let me ask you, though, because we, when we talk about immigration, we tend to think about walls at the outer borders. But sometimes it's the walls inside a country or walls described in various ways that may be as or more troubling. So I'd be really interested in your thoughts about interior walls. Uh, I, I want to answer that question, but I also want to reflect back. Uh, you know, as, as, a, as a civil rights lawyer, you know, the first Immigration Act of 1790, so that was the very first immigration law the country had, really defined, it started defining who could be considered a citizen based on race. And race itself was an evolving, and it's still an evolving concept, right? So a lot of the ways in which we've had walls, we really have always had these metaphoric walls, even if 98% of those who came through Ellis Island got in. And some of that was because of who we considered who is us and who gets to be us and who is them. Um, so coming from people who would have loved to have a wall because it wasn't about immigration, a wall wouldn't have been a bad thing if it had said you can't force us here. Um, so that's a little bit of a different conception. <laughs> but really, you know, in the early, early days, I, I'm going to get, this is way, way, way too historic, but I'm actually going to share it because it's going to make the point about the way we construct social, political, economic walls uh, by othering people, by saying they're not us. Because in the early days of the Virginia colony, this notion of black and white didn't exist. And blacks, what we come to think of as black chattel slavery hadn't fully formed, although it was clearly a form of slavery. But if you were a white indentured servant from Western Europe and you were an African brought in bondage, for the first like 65 years of the Virginia colony, you actually, if you were black, could become free, like an indentured servant became free when their indenture was over. And usually the way you did that was you, you had to convert to Christianity because it was pagan Christian. Uh, and there was a lot of intermarrying and there wasn't segregation based on race. 
And for a whole bunch of reasons we don't have time to talk about now, you know, the colony over time really developed what became, what we really know and understand as chattel slavery. You can't understand that without understanding Native Americans and how colonists interacted with Native Americans, with the creation of anti-miscegenation law that said, okay, you white indentured service, got to stop marrying these Africans. <laughs> and you can't understand it without kind of evolving notions of no longer allowing black slaves the opportunity for freedom. And so I say that because it had to be constructed by law, by policy decisions that started to direct people whether or not they belonged or not, and who they should belong with. And even those early days of immigration, as you well know, Irish were not white and Italians were not white, so they may have been building the subways Mohawk were helping to build the Brooklyn Bridge, um, but they were not considered a part of us, even if they could have a passport. So, Maya, you, do you want to take that um, forward and talk about the, the walls you see that are uh, the, the biggest barriers to uh, a United States or United people or however we should describe it? I was actually going to ask you that. But question, you handed but I, the microphone. I guess true, I did. Shoot. All right, so I'm, I'm going to actually frame this up with a story, and then, and then I want your take on it in terms of what our walls really look like now. Because when I think about the immigration fight that, you know, what we're talking about a president and whether a president can have, really usurp, I'm going to say it, usurp the power of Congress in contradiction to the U.S. Constitution, to build a physical wall at the border. And what, I, what strikes me, I'm just going to tell this, there were two big news stories. Well, I consider them big. They weren't all big. But there are two news stories this week that I think we should think of together rather than separately. So one was the Mueller report, right? I mean, so a president giving... A president lying on, we, I mean, we have lots of evidence of the president lying repeatedly um, and no consequences. Now, we don't know what the report fully says. I'm just saying we do know that from that process, there are no consequences. Um, but lots of lies, lots of lies of his senior officials, lots of lies from him himself, maybe even a lie in his written answers to Robert Mueller in his questions that he was asked. Now, the other story was a nine-year-old girl crossing the border from Tijuana, who is a US citizen, who was detained for over 24 hours. All she was doing was going to school. And the reason ICE detained her was because she gave inconsistent answers to the questions they asked her when she was trying to walk across the border to get to school to avoid the traffic that was going to make her late. That's the contradiction, is who can lie? Who can be inconsistent and who can't? And what are the consequences of that? And it's all about race and privilege. I, that, I mean, that story, you can't understand it in any other way than to say, you're, I'm not going to see you as a child. How many of you have, have any of you had a nine-year-old? You've all been nine. 
How many consistent statements did you regularly make at age nine? <laughs> so my question to you is the relationship between race and immigration in your view and how that's shaping, you know, is there a way for us to transcend that when we think about immigration today? Well, it's a really complicated long story, but as you pointed out, the 1790 naturalization law said you could become a citizen if you were a white person. So it was right into the law from the very beginning. The first major regulations of immigration preventing people from coming to the U.S. were called the Chinese Exclusion Laws in the 1880s. Uh, the 1920 National Origin Act, which imposed rules and regulations for the first time across all of the Europeans, were racially based on a notion of, of, of race and national origin. So it's been with us all the way through. And I, you know, thinking about Trump's wall, this physical wall, which of course nobody thinks is needed. I mean, even if your goal were to stop every undocumented immigrant from coming in, you wouldn't build walls. You'd have other kinds of sensors and people moving in, smart borders, security, all sorts of other ways to take care of border security. So, so what's that wall doing that wall is there to stop people coming from Latin America. And that has got to be race-based. I mean, it's, I, I don't say this lightly. I don't say this usually, but it's really hard not to see in the Trump immigration policies echoes of white nationalism from the Muslim ban all the way through the wall and the treatment of children and parents. Um, it's a really sad thing to say about a president and, and a Congress that hasn't stopped him uh, from doing that, but it's, it's impossible. Now, how do you, how do you change that? Um, that's the question on here about how do you, how do you take walls down on this, the wall here? Um, it's about politics and social movements. Um, it's about organizing. The, 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 only, my, the only solace I take in this whole sort of awful set of stories about immigration that we've witnessed last two years is that the American people don't agree with any of Trump's major policies. Every policy is opposed by a majority of Americans. That's reductions in refugees coming to the country, the Muslim ban, the caging and separation of children, the pushbacks into Mexico, the building of the wall, the sending of the military. All the polling shows that these were opposed by a majority of Americans. And that's a good sign, at least, that there is the, the reservoir there of political sanity uh, to sort of push back uh, on this. But um, it's going to take a political fight. So, um, Okay, so we've talked about um, immigration and, and race here, but I know that you're thinking really deeply about the digital divide in this country, and I would love you to talk a bit about what that divide looks like in ways over that. Oh, so, you know, the interesting thing about the walls as metaphor, because it's, it's both literal, because Trump literally wants one, <laughs> and it, but it's also metaphoric in the way that we're talking about what are our internal walls. Um, I, I would argue even the way we think about Trump's election is about how we have a lot of constructed walls both politically and in terms of who we know and how we know them. Um, we really do still live very segregated lives. But we are now seeing technology, there's a lot of hope about, and fear, right? Both those things can be true. Technology itself is neutral. It's the people who aren't. 
you know, what we try to decide to build and what its uses are and whether or not we think it's going to do good. But who's creating the technology? Um, there's a great book. One of the things it notes is that really we have tribes who are creating our technology. And by tribes, what the author means, her name is Webb, she's a journalist, she does some really great work on technology and where, particularly artificial intelligence. And her point about the tribe is that it's literally a tribe largely of white men, largely from nine schools or eight schools. They're not even from a range of different institutions. Um, and, and there is some diversity amongst them, but very little, and mostly South Asian and Chinese. Uh, and again, that's also about immigration. That's also about immigration. Um, but it means that everything that they're deciding is going to be a technological design for good is decided from an experience base that doesn't look like most of us. So it's not about ill intent, but it's fundamental in how it's going to drive new, potentially can break down walls. So I really say this not to say that it's all a negative, um, but, but to construct the sense, a different way of constructing who we are and who we are in communication with. Because that's what artificial intelligence is starting to do is to shape who we're communicating with, what we think about them, whether or not they're like us. In, in ways that become very, very, very odd, potentially. Um, the obvious ones you all know, which is facial recognition software, take it because that's the one we hear the most about, where we already know that the facial recognition software oversamples people of color if it's searching for people who need to be arrested because there's a warning. It misidentifies more often if you're black than if you're white in this country. By the way, if you're in Europe, it more often misidentifies you if you're Asian. So it's whatever the biases are, but the bias is also in the data because where you're getting the data from, so if we're over-criminalizing people of color, we're also over-including those biometrics in the data and then not understanding how to construct the questions that get asked in a way that starts to shape even what the technology is telling us differently. But it's even scarier than that because it's gotten to a point where a lot of the AI is self-learning. So a lot of the, the, the folks who are constructing it can't even tell you how it's making decisions anymore. And you know that just has huge implications for who we are and how we're in relationship um, and what the technology does. But the mere fact that most of us aren't part of the tribe means that there are real serious questions about how much good it can produce from those who are already excluded. So there are ways to solve that. I, I think we, you know, I think what I was gonna say back to you was, do we need some walls? Are, are walls ever good? Because you might argue that in the technological sense that some walls are actually needed. Um, some gatekeeping might be needed. Do you think that might be the case in any way from the immigration side? So I think you probably need borders. I'm not sure you need walls. And what I mean by that is that you probably need political jurisdictions 
you need to have a sense of solidarity among people living in a space who will care about other people living in that space and they'll adopt tax policies and welfare policies and build schools and do things that you want in a community. And that may require a border that describes a political jurisdiction. It doesn't mean you necessarily have to keep the rest of the world out. And that's the, the story about American cities and American states. The Supreme Court decided, we're both lawyers up here, by the way, so we can talk back and forth about these, these Supreme Court cases. The Supreme Court decided uh, the cases in the early 20th century um, that said the states could not keep citizens from other states out, and they couldn't even keep immigrants out. So if the federal government had admitted an immigrant to the country, no state could say that immigrant can't come. So we actually have constitutional law that says, of course you can have states, and of course you can have cities, but you can't have walls. And I think that, so there's a big difference here between borders and walls. But even borders, right, uh, without walls? I mean, the nine-year-old, the story of the nine-year-old girl is one of a border, not a wall. Um, so to what extent um, can borders be positive and to what extent do we think about how we regulate them so they don't become negative? Yeah, well, um, I guess this has been described in the past as a border that works. You know, I mean, you, you want a border that, you know, does its job of, of treating people fairly and equally and letting them in. And if there's some people that shouldn't come in under fairly adopted rules, then probably it stops right, them from gotta, coming in. So, I'm, yeah. I'm going to ask him a harder one. See, that wasn't hard enough. The caravan, right? It's the caravan. All right, the look, the, I have a lot to say about the caravan. First of all, what the president said about the caravan was outrageous that these were dangerous people coming to the United States, that they were paid for by George. He didn't deny when they asked that they were paid for by George Soros, that they included Mid East, Middle Easterners among them. He tried to paint this in the most negative, horrible, awful way. And it failed for him because there was a blue wave. Because when he, for the congressional elections, he ran on the caravan and he lost. He lost big while the Democrats were talking about health care and tax policy and not talking about immigration at all. He lost it, Trump lost, and he deserved to lose it on the caravan because the reason people get together in a caravan is for safety and so that they don't have to pay smugglers and traffickers who put them at risk. And the people in the caravan overwhelmingly were families uh, who were fleeing violence, poor economic situations, corrupt governments, gang-dominated areas. I'm not saying every single one was entitled to political asylum, but this was a, these were people with serious claims of danger and wanting to improve their lives. Let, let me go back to, to Ellis Island for a minute. That was maybe a longer answer than you want. Um, you know, when, when people came to Ellis Island, there's an interesting map at Ellis Island about how long it took to get here. So if you were sailing in a sailing ship in the early part of the 1800s, like from Liverpool, it took seven weeks. It's a lot of time on a boat, you know. When the steamships came in, it took about 10 days, I think from Liverpool, and that was the mid to late 1800s. Big change, so a lot more people, that's really what caused the, the technology that caused this huge increase in migration from Europe. Uh, the caravan, when people had to walk a thousand miles, can you imagine walking a thousand miles with kids through Mexico? Is that what terrorists do? They walk a thousand miles to get to the US? But what, what the smugglers now apparently are doing is they're renting buses in Honduras, and people can get on a bus and be at the border now in three days. 
Now, people say, oh, it just shows how terrible this is. And you're thinking, wait a second. This is like going from sailing ships to to steam to steamboats to, to steamships, right? That you can actually get to the border sooner. And the question is, what what happens to you at the border? Well, if you have a decent asylum claim, you should be judged fairly, expeditiously. There should be more judges and asylum officers at the border to hear those claims. But the fact that people want to get here quicker to safety and security, it's not a bad thing. That seems to me it's a it's a good thing. So, so the, so the message on the caravan was just was just. Uh, wrong from the start. On the, uh, so, uh, to take one other thing here, though, I, I think we need a much more comprehensive policy on people coming from Latin America, from from the these so-called Northern Triangle states of of Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. And people shouldn't have to come through Mexico to get to the U.S. So I, I would have a a set of policies that would do the following kinds of things. First of all, there should be kind of a regional asylum policy that could be done by the UN in Mexico and people could be granted asylum and then maybe distributed to countries in the region, not all coming to the US. Um, Secondly, as I said, there need to be more immigration judges at the border. But thirdly, I think there should be an admissions program directly from those states of people who are in serious need or have family here, whatever. Imagine if we took 50,000 people from the Northern Triangle, which is not a large number. We, t- we hand out a million green cards a year in this country, a million still. Trump hasn't done anything to that number yet. A million green cards. So 50,000 people coming from those three countries in an orderly way where they could apply would mean they wouldn't have to get in a caravan to come through the country. And I think would take a lot of the pressure off. But we need that kind of comprehensive approach. But when you start simply stigmatizing, demonizing the caravan as dangerous people, he called it an invasion of the United States and sent troops to the U.S. border for, for people fleeing violence. They were then going to face violence at our border. Can you really dismantle a wall with words? Don't they just bounce off and up into space? Does that slogan make sense to you? So um, I think words matter a lot. Now, words in and of themselves are not the the end game. (laughs) But if you think about it this way, the conversation where, you know, one of the problems we're having when we, when we, you pointed it out so well, Alex, with how Donald Trump was talking about the caravan. Um, but there are all these people who actually don't understand that that's what the caravan was. Like these folks walking for, uh, you know, a thousand miles, mostly families, didn't understand the conditions that they were fleeing. And some of that is because the words they're getting, and I will translate words into the facts, you know, we're, we're already divided. We already have walls around how we get our information and how informed we are. Um, one of the things that I always found so interesting, so I, I, I had to spend a lot of time in Arizona uh, last year for purely personal reasons. Um, it was literally like descending into another country because it had its own separate source of words, um, and therefore facts, and even the way that those things got discussed. And I do think it gets very difficult for those of us who get our news and our information, who who get education, who get to have these conversations in diverse settings, who get exposed. 
you know, we forget how much that shapes our understanding and even how we talk about these things. Now, I don't pretend that's enough, but I think that unless we start to get to a place, and I watched my, never been prouder, my, my, my little racially ambiguous, not white daughter. Um, I mean, I say that because everybody could not figure out how to treat her because they just couldn't figure out what she was. They desperately needed to treat her some kind of way, but they were having trouble understanding which kind of way. And, you know, when you see that, you really understand the social construction of race, right? When your people are trying to figure out how to, re- or gender, right? You see that we, you have your boy babies and your girl babies, and people get really upset when your little girl baby's wearing green because they don't think they treated her appropriately. You're like, babe, don't drop her, just like you didn't drop the boy. <laughs> so, but, but we do this, right? And it's just, it does, we don't even think about it. Um, but listening to her challenge When someone said to her, an older white woman who she loved said, well, the Civil War wasn't fought on slavery. And I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) And my daughter said, oh, that's interesting. Why do we fight it? And she allowed this woman to kind of share what she had learned about why we fought the Civil War, which had nothing to do with chattel slavery, not a thing. It had to do with money and power. And by the time my daughter had gotten through asking her these questions, of course, because she would ask her questions, she'd say, well, but what was the economy based on in the South? And the woman was like, well, you know, slave plantations, slave. She first said agricultural. But, you know, my daughter said, okay, agriculture, right, slavery. And she went, right, right, driven by slavery. She went, right, right. So at the end of it, my daughter says, see how we got back to slavery there? And, but the point is, that was a really important conversation for both of them, for both of them. It was important for my daughter to see what kind of narrative had been handed to this woman she loved who loved her, but also her ability to use words that opened up the conversation. Now, our, one of our problems in society is we don't have these conversations. That conver- I, I just told her, I was like, you just did a graduate seminar right there, and you haven't even gone to college. But that, we don't, that, that actually matters. And if you think about, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm literally a child of the civil rights movement, like my parents were, were activists. Um, but the way that white students got on buses and participated in freedom rides did require words. It did require words. But to your point about social movement, the words have to lead to a different kind of collective action. And that, I think, is where the words matter. And that actually brings me to the question I was going to ask you, Alex, which is, are there words you think we should be using? Are there ways we should be talking about immigration that would help lead to an expanded and more impactful set of social movements around immigration policy and not having walls. Well, <clears throat> hmm. so I'm going to dodge that question a bit. Um, the, uh, and Maya, you're going to help me answer this uh, over the next year because one of the things the New School will be doing as part of its 100th anniversary will be 
sponsoring a set of talks uh, which we're calling a new American narrative on immigration. And Maya Wiley has agreed to be one of the speakers, which, as you see why we want Maya as one of the I was speakers. Just for answers. Yeah. But um, it's a really, I think it's a really difficult question um, because it's clear that Trump words are not the right words. It's not the American tradition. It's nothing that we want to hear the way he talks about immigration. Um, so we need a new way. We clearly need to clear, clean up the current discourse. It's not obvious to me that we go back to the old way of talking. You know, I, we're, we're taping this whole thing, by the way, for, for a podcast because we have a podcast at the Zolberg Institute. It's called Tempest Tossed. Here's my advertisement for Tempest, <laughs> Tempest Tossed. But the phrase Tempest Tossed comes from the Emma Lazarus poem, which is on the side of the Statue of Liberty, which is give me your tired, your poor. You probably all sang this in elementary school. Um, but it has the line, send these, the homeless, Tempest tossed to me, I light my lamp beside the golden door. That's the statue. And that was the view. She wrote that in the 1880s about Jewish refugees coming out of Russia. More than 2.5 million Jews left Russia for the United States over the next 20, 30 years. Um, it's not obvious to me that our immigration policy should be defined by Emma Lazarus anymore. That's only about the huddled masses yearning to be three, but, but that we should be open to the big world for lots of reasons. So I'm toying with two different ideas here, and we'll see once we get through all these talks and public lectures and things, then we'll see if we can put this into a book and figure out really what the new narrative should be. But the two ideas I'm dealing with, the one, and this actually came to me at Ellis Island, was even rather than the idea of the U.S. as a, a nation of immigrants, that's the current liberal phrase, which to me is very static somehow, a nation of immigrants. And, and, and erases some of it. It erases some of them. And it erases, right, people who were Native here American, here already Black. and people who were forced to come, et cetera, et cetera. So <clears throat> one, the thought to me was um, the, of the United States that it's it, – the, what the U.S. does, and it's going to erase some people again, but gets a little better, is it welcomes the world. And what I mean by welcoming the world, it's not what we're currently doing, but what we should be doing is that we're open to the world, we're open to ideas, we're open to different people and groups coming in. And it's not as static. It's not like you're going to come and stay necessarily. You may come and visit, you may come be a student, you may come and live here, but, but we are a country that is open and forward-leaning and optimistic. The other thing about I'm sorry I'm spending so much time on the statute and the, and the Ellis Island, but you know, Statue of Liberty faces out right, welcoming people coming in. And you can see the torch as a way of saying, oh, I'm lighting my lamp so people can get to the US. But on the other hand, it's also reaching out to the world. And I think what immigration will do in the 21st century, and this ties in with technology, is I think immigrants are a bridge to the rest of the world. That when they come here, they do maintain ties to home states and home countries, and they create businesses back and forth, and the educational opportunities and and families, and and we're living in a more transnational world because of technology that allows that kind of ease of of connection. And so, while we welcome the world in, we're also building bridges out, and that's not the typical U.S. immigration story, right? It's you come here, you settle, you stay, you become American. Right, that's the American story. But if we can see ourselves as a nation among other nations with immigrants building the bridges, then you've got a, a dynamic world that I think is a, is a good thing. So those are my initial thoughts, but I'll wait to hear your lecture on this in the next few months.
I, I do want to think a bit more about, I'd like you to think, tell us a bit more your thoughts on the, the, the walls within. Um, and they're, they're such concentric circles, aren't they? Because they're, they're walls within each person, the ways we wall ourselves off from others and then neighborhoods and then communities and the like. And you asked me the question, are some walls good? And are then I, I want to ask the one back to you. Is it, is it possible that in a world of such rampant technology now that we need some walls for a personal private space and how do you how do you build and sustain those in a way that doesn't divide us that's that's that is a hard question and i I think of it in terms of principles so you know i think there's a principle of (laughs) self-protection because and and there is particularly in the technological sense the the idea of being able to wall yourself off is a positive one right because technology has actually created a lot of lack of safety for some people. Um, you know, with the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, there were a lot of people being targeted because they were black activists, <laughs> Black Lives Matter activists, and they were, Twitter was their medium, and uh, really led to a lot of conversations with Jack Dorsey at Twitter about how to create more online safety. But with the rise of hate in this country, I mean, we've seen unprecedented rise in the number and size of hate groups in this country. And 60% of victims are black. Anti-Semitism has risen by something like 23, 27%, crazy high. And the fastest growing number of hate groups are focused on Islam, right? So that, in other words, I say all that to say, depending on how you look at it, you basically we're all getting targeted somehow, some way, unless we fall into a narrow category of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. And what that means is there really has been a lot of issues just around that kind of basic safety. Um, But then there's also, you know, all kinds of a sense of how do you help to develop your own identity, to develop a community in a positive way. Um, And sometimes technology can be helpful for that, but you also need to be able to protect technology from driving what that is for you. Because technology right now is actually not intentionally, but through AI, sometimes creating walls um, by, by kind of defining communities and kind of telling you where to go to find your people. Again, not intentional, but that's the way the AI works. So, you know, I think there has to be, we can't be afraid of having identity, right? I mean, that's, you know, sort of similar to your point about you know, we have to be thinking about bridging with, with others and thinking about how immig- with, in other parts of the world and thinking about Im- immigrants as a bridge. Uh, we have to also be not afraid of identity. You know, we, that's the identity politics problem is it makes it a negative. Uh, but actually think about identity as a positive so that it, you can both have an identity and you can be identified in a group and not have that become a negative. Um, but that there's certain principles around that. So you can't be driving a, an identity of hate <laughs> or, or driving hate or violence against others. Um, and there should be ways to recognize we all have multiple identities, right? You're never, we're never only leading with just one and we're never living our lives only as just one, <laughs> right? That's just not true of anybody. Um, and so the point is how do we enable folks to have community in all of the different ways we have identity. 
And that should be the positive way in which technology helps us, you know, that, but it can't if we're not all able to use it and if it isn't all shaped in ways that, it, that enable and recognize that. So that was uh, our conversation from the rooftop bar at the Hoxton Hotel in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Uh, again, you can see a picture of the wall with the words uh, on our website, tempesttossed.com. You've been listening to Tempest Tossed, a production of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility at the New School. Our engineer is Sahil Ansari at Dodge 112, and theme music composed by Eli Elenikov. We would welcome your comments and suggestions for future episodes. And you can reach us by emailing us at tossedtempest at gmail.com. That's tossedtempest, all one word, at gmail.com.